Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. It was a sunny Thursday afternoon, July 28, 1977. A perfect summer day in the city. 12-year-old Emmanuel, his 14-year-old brother Luciano, and their 12-year-old friend Shane McLean were hanging out at their usual spot on the corner of Young and Dundas Streets in the bustling downtown core of Toronto. The three boys were a familiar fixture, shining shoes for passing businessmen or tourists. 50 cents a shine, they would call out. And they weren't the only kids hustling for a few bucks on the street corners of Toronto. There were usually a dozen or so hanging around the Young Street Strip, just south of Sam the Record Man and A&A Records. The police knew most of them by name and would send the younger ones home when it got dark. Pedestrian traffic had exploded at the intersection with the opening of the Toronto Eaton Centre five months earlier, on February 23, 1977. With over 250 stores and a spectacular vaulted glass galleria, the massive downtown shopping complex was considered an architectural masterpiece and attracted thousands of people every day. It was a world-class shopping destination and part of an ambitious urban plan to revitalize Toronto's downtown core. Because just across the street from the sparkling new shopping mecca at Young and Dundas, the east side of Young Street took on a darker, much sleazier tone. Massage parlors, adult bookstores, theaters, and strip clubs with bright neon signs advertising their offerings. Young, scantily clad women would hang out on the sidewalk, offering the passerby a memorable experience if they came inside. But for kids on the corner like Emmanuel, his brother and friend, the east side of the strip was just part of the gritty scenery. They didn't pay attention to what went on across the street. They were only focused on making money shining shoes. On a good day, the Jacks boys could make 20 bucks, which they would always give to their mother. With seven kids in a cramped apartment, every dollar helped. On this sunny summer afternoon, Emmanuel was feeling particularly industrious. A neighbor was going to give him a puppy, so he wanted to make extra money to buy some dog food for his new pet. As the day wore on, the boys eagerly applied their polish to a few dozen shoes and boots passing by. Then, around 5.30, a man stopped by their corner. Tall, thin, in his 20s, the guy said he was from out of town. The shoes on his feet needed a polish, and so did the well-worn work boots he was carrying in a bag. When the boys were done, the friendly man handed them four dollars, two for the shoes 
and two for the boots, much more than the 50 cents they usually charged. The boys were thrilled, but then the man made them another offer. How would they like to make $35 an hour to move some photography equipment? Easy money, thought Emmanuel, who was thinking about his new puppy. He immediately agreed, but the other two boys weren't so sure. While the man was friendly enough, there was something about him that made Luciano and Shane uneasy. They told the man that they would have to call their mothers to get permission. Leaving Emmanuel on the corner to watch over their shoeshine box, Luciano and Shane went around the corner to a payphone outside a restaurant to call home. Both mothers told their sons not to go anywhere with the strange man, and they were to be home by 9 p.m. as usual. Minutes later, Luciano and Shane returned to their corner. But Emmanuel wasn't there. Then they spotted him walking down the street with the strange man. They called out, but Emmanuel didn't hear them over the crowds and traffic noise. It was the last time anyone would see Emmanuel alive. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast... I'm bringing you the shocking and tragic story of a young immigrant boy who trusted the wrong person. His brutal murder sent shockwaves through Canada's largest city. Toronto the Good, as it was aptly named by a former mayor, had become a haven for a seedy sex industry that existed within a legal grey zone to which politicians and the police turned a blind eye. The Young Street Strip, better known as Sin Strip, was home to dozens of X-rated movie theaters, body rub parlors, pornographic bookstores, and prostitutes. And it was against this backdrop that a young boy was lured to his death. Citizens were outraged, and they demanded action. They wanted the Sin Strip cleaned up and all the sex businesses closed down for good. But the horrendous crime would have ripple effects that would impact more than just the sleazy owners of sex clubs. And a city would be forever changed. This is Innocence Lost, the murder of Emmanuel Jacks. The city of Toronto is a thriving metropolis famous for its ethnic and cultural diversity. Millions from across the globe have settled in Canada's largest city and built a vibrant community we call home today. It is a welcome hub of multiculturalism, and most of us are the sons and daughters of immigrants who sought a better future for their children, which was exactly what Valdemiro Jacks hoped for when he emigrated from the Azores off the coast of Portugal in 1972. With only a basic command of English, he worked as a cleaner for two years to save enough money to bring his wife and seven children to Canada in 1974. For the many Portuguese immigrants, like the Jacks family, Toronto offered greater opportunities and a better life. And with close to 80,000 Portuguese immigrants arriving in Canada in the 1970s, a thriving community known as Little Portugal developed west of the downtown core. However, the Jacks family lived in an apartment on the east side of the city, on Shooter Street, in an area known as Regent Park. Money was tight for the family of nine, 
so all of the older kids had part-time jobs. And Emmanuel was anxious to help out too. So, in the summer of 1977, he built a shoeshine box out of some discarded wood scraps and painted it light green. Then, he went to his parents and asked them to let him go to Young and Dundas Street to shine shoes. His mother, Maria, said no. He was too young to be downtown. So, Emmanuel went to his father. He begged and pleaded for his dad to let him go. And finally, Mr. Jacks relented. A decision he would regret for the rest of his life. On the afternoon of Thursday, July 28th, Emmanuel, his brother Luciano, and Shane were at their usual corner at Young and Dundas Street, shining shoes. When a man offered them $35 to move some camera equipment, Emmanuel was thrilled. Let me earn the money! Let me earn the money! He yelled to his friends. The extra cash would buy a lot of dog food for his new puppy, and he could give the rest to his parents. But the two other boys were skeptical. It almost sounded too good to be true, and they got a strange vibe from the man. Leaving Emmanuel, the boys went around the corner to call their parents, and when they returned minutes later, they saw Emmanuel walking away with the stranger. Yelling after him, their voices were drowned out by the noise of the busy downtown intersection. They knew something wasn't right. Why didn't the man wait for them to come back? The boys started looking around for a police officer, but couldn't find one, so they ran home as fast as they could. They had to tell their parents. Emmanuel's father and older siblings rushed down to the busy intersection to look for him. Had anyone seen him? Hundreds passed by that corner every hour, but there was no sign of him. And as the hot summer day faded into evening, the Jacks family grew frantic. Their son had been led away by a strange man, and they feared the worst. Knowing only a little English at the time, a terrified Valdemiro Jacks asked his 17-year-old daughter, Valdemira, to contact the police. Within hours of Emmanuel's disappearance, Toronto police officers from 54 Division were searching for the young boy, described as 4 feet 5 inches tall, about 80 pounds, fair complexion, brown, medium-length hair, and hazel eyes. The police searched in and around the Young and Dundas intersection where he had been taken from. Copies of his school photo were widely circulated throughout the downtown core. And soon the search grew to over a hundred officers combing the streets on foot and on horseback. Alleyways, laneways, abandoned buildings and dumpsters were searched, along with parks, wooded ravines, the CN train tracks and the Don River. Given the location that Emmanuel had last been seen, the police expanded their search to include many of the local body rub parlors and sex clubs along the Young Street Strip. They also checked out some of the gay bars and nightclubs. The two other boys, Luciano and Shane, had given the police a general description of the man who had taken Emmanuel. White, in his late 20s, with long, light brown hair. He was wearing blue denim overalls with no shirt. He had bragged to the boys that he knew Kung Fu and had flashed a roll of $200 in cash. On Saturday, July 30th, 1977, a small article appeared on the front page of the Toronto Star newspaper. The police were looking for a 12-year-old boy who had been missing since Thursday afternoon when he had been picked up by a man at Young and Dundas. 
The paper that mistakenly called him Manuel Jax said the shoeshine boy had been offered money to move some camera equipment and his friends had spotted him leaving with the stranger. The paper also noted that the boy's parents were Portuguese immigrants who did not speak English. A recent school photo of Emmanuel accompanied the article. And while the story made the front page, it was the August 1st long weekend, so most Torontonians weren't really paying close attention to the news. But while the residents of the city enjoyed the summer holiday, the police expanded their search for the missing 12-year-old boy. Many of the cops looking for Emmanuel refused to go off shift to get some rest. They knew time was critical if there was any hope in finding the boy alive. The police interviewed local street vendors, many of whom knew Emmanuel and other shoeshine kids. Maybe someone would recognize the description of the mystery man because he had likely approached other kids working on the street. In fact, he had told Shane and the Jacks brothers that he was specifically looking for boys between the ages of 9 and 14 to help him with his camera equipment. Despite an exhaustive three-day search of the Young Street Strip and beyond, there was no sign of Emmanuel and no clues as to the identity of the man who had lured him away. The long weekend had brought thousands of tourists into the city, heading to the new Eaton Centre, cheering on the Blue Jays who were on a winning streak, or visiting the recently completed CN Tower. Few probably noticed the increased police presence downtown, or the missing posters stapled to telephone poles. But before the hot summer weekend was through, everyone in Toronto would know the name Emmanuel Jacks. On Monday, August 1st, the newspaper headlines announced that missing 12-year-old shoeshine boy Emmanuel Jacks had been found murdered. With the announcement of the tragic news, the police also confirmed that they had arrested four men in connection with the murder. In fact, one of the suspects had voluntarily walked into the police station the night before and had confessed to murdering Emmanuel. The police at 51 Division didn't know what to make of Saul David Bettish when he showed up with a lawyer at the police station on Sunday evening. What he told the officers was almost too bizarre to believe. While at first he admitted to seeing Emmanuel and taking him for a hamburger, he denied knowing anything about what had happened to the boy. But as the hours passed and the police kept pressing, Bedish eventually admitted that he had lured Emmanuel to an apartment above a body rub parlor where he worked. There, the boy had been photographed, drugged, sexually assaulted, strangled, and then drowned in a kitchen sink. Bedish informed the police that three other men had been involved in the assault and murder. For Police Sergeant Patton Weir, a 15-year veteran of the force, the horrific details of Emmanuel Jack's final hours were extremely difficult to listen to. And he still didn't know if Bedish was telling the truth. But after 12 hours of questioning, Bedish finally told the police where they could find Emmanuel's body. He gave the police the names of the three other men involved, but said they were already on a train heading for Vancouver. Acting immediately on the information Bedish gave them, Toronto police rushed back to the Young Street Strip and smashed in the door of the Charlie's Angels Body Rub Parlor at 245 Young Street. It was a location 
they had searched a few days earlier. And there on the rooftop of the filthy three-story building, they found the naked body of Emmanuel Jacks. The 12-year-old boy had been wrapped in a shower curtain and garbage bags and then crammed into an unused metal air vent and buried beneath some trash. The location was less than a hundred yards from the street corner where Emmanuel had shined shoes for 50 cents a pair. A few hours after Emmanuel's body was discovered, Ontario Provincial Police arrested three scruffy-looking men on a train in Sioux Lookout and flew them back to Toronto. Charged with the murder of Emmanuel Jacks were 27-year-old Saul David Bedish, 41-year-old Albert Wayne Cribbs, 26-year-old Joseph Woods, and 26-year-old Werner Gruner. The day after the police announced the arrests, a lone police officer stood outside the shattered glass door of the Charlie's Angels body rub parlor on Young Street. The shop's neon sign still glowed pink, advertising, sexy, girls, girls, girls. The body rub parlor was one of approximately 40 massage parlors along Young Street between Bluer and Richmond Street, roughly a 15-block radius at the time. Their emergence had become a huge political issue in post-war Toronto, but little had been done to stop their spread. To sidestep existing laws and prevent police raids, operators of the body rub and massage parlors found clever ways to advertise their services, such as nude encounters or nude meditation centers. Customers could pay $20 to talk to a nude girl for 20 minutes or get a topless dance for 15 minutes. Since none of these activities apparently didn't involve sex, they weren't technically illegal. And while most Torontonians turned a blind eye to the Sin Strip, those profiting off the sex trade industry continue to enjoy a steady and profitable business. In an era of Hugh Hefner and Playboy magazine, sex was entertainment, and Young Street was the busiest entertainment district in the city. But now, a 12-year-old child had been lured to his death above a seedy massage parlor, and the Toronto newspapers were reporting that the brutal crime had been part of a homosexual orgy, sparing few gruesome details for their readers. Something had to be done. On Wednesday, August the 3rd, 1977, two days after Emanuel's body was found, Reverend Harold Jackman organized a two-mile march from Emanuel's home in Regent Park, west to Young Street. Many of those who walked were friends and neighbors of the Jacks family. The solemn crowd paused for a minute of silence outside Charlie's Angel's body rub parlor before making their way over to City Hall to meet with Mayor David Crombie. Crombie's office had already been inundated with hundreds of calls. Frustrated and angry parents demanding to know why the city wasn't doing anything to clean up the cesspool of Young Street. How many other children would fall prey to pedophiles living amongst the filth before the politicians took action? The public outcry was intense, and many protesters were also calling for a reinstatement of the death penalty in Canada, which had been abolished under the Liberal government of Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau just one year earlier, on July 14, 1976. Mayor Crombie promised the crowd that changes would be made to clean up Young Street. He and the Ontario Premier 
William Davis, were meeting to discuss ways in which they could change existing obscenity laws and licensing to permanently shut down any sex businesses in commercial properties along the Strip. He was prepared to take on the sex shop owners and push them out of the city for good. Carrying signs that read down with body rub joints and kill the dirty pigs, the emotionally charged crowd listened to the impassioned speech from the mayor and hoped it signaled a drastic change for the city. But for the devastated Jacks family, political promises and policy changes weren't going to bring their beloved son back to them. On August 4th, 1977, people began arriving early to St. Agnes Catholic Church on Gray Street in Toronto. Young and old, neighbors, friends, schoolmates, and total strangers. Mayor David Crombie, police officers, and politicians. They had all come to say goodbye to a young boy who in death had united a city in grief. Over 3,000 people were there. Some packed into the church while others stood outside. Many cried as the small white coffin was carried inside by young pallbearers including Emmanuel's older brother, Luciano, and friend, Shane McLean, who had been with him on the day he was abducted. It's as if we all lost a son here today, said one mourner. After the funeral, a 250-car procession, stretching almost five kilometers long, took 90 minutes to travel under police escort to Holy Cross Cemetery in Thornhill. Overcome by grief at the gravesite, Valdemiro Jax threw himself at the coffin of his son. As Emmanuel's mother, Maria, fell to the ground, sobbing uncontrollably. They would never see their beautiful boy again. And they would never recover from their grief. An anguish that was deeply felt by the entire Portuguese community in Toronto. For the hard-working Portuguese, Emmanuel's brutal murder marked a turning point. Toronto the good had let them down. They felt they had been betrayed, duped into believing in the immigrants' dream that coming to Canada would give their children a better life. Now, one of them had been brutally murdered. If this could happen to Emmanuel, it could happen to any of their children. The city had failed to protect them, and fear overtook their once vibrant community. Doors were locked, and kids weren't allowed to go out and play. But the community was also angry. The industrious and dutiful citizens who traditionally never questioned authority were fed up with not being heard. It was time for that to change. On August the 8th, roughly 15,000 people, mostly of Portuguese heritage, descended upon City Hall demanding a crackdown on the city's sex industry. They wanted official action to snuff out what they described as a festering marketplace of massage parlors and nude encounter emporia that had overrun the south end of the city's main drag. And they wanted justice. They believed that the four men accused of Emmanuel's murder should be sentenced to death. A life-size effigy representing the men hung from a noose attached to a makeshift gallows during the protest. The city's Portuguese community were outraged. 
not just at the men who had taken the life of the young boy, but also at the owners of the sex clubs and city and provincial politicians who had allowed Young Street to become a cancer on the city. Some even spoke of their anger towards Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau for allowing the government to abolish capital punishment. What would he do if it was one of his sons, protesters asked. They wanted immediate action at all levels of government instead of empty political promises. One young Portuguese boy, the same age of Emmanuel Jacks, had collected over a thousand signatures on a petition asking Premier William Davis to make Young Street safe for kids once again. For years, the Toronto Press, particularly the Toronto Sun newspaper, had been after the city and the province to do something about the growing sex trade industry in Toronto. And in 1976, the year before Emmanuel's murder, the newspaper had published a number of stories against sex shops and adult bookstores selling hardcore pornography. They were critical of Mayor Crombie's lackluster efforts to clean up Young Street and feared it was turning into the Canadian version of New York's famous 42nd Street District. The Sun newspaper, home of the infamous Sunshine Girl, and adult industry ads on its back pages even stated that it would no longer sell display ads for sex-related businesses. The Toronto Star was also highly critical of city and provincial politicians for failing to act on the calls to clean up Young Street. But the press's vocal opposition to the growing sex trade industry and the underbelly of society it attracted was not heeded in time to save Emmanuel Jacks. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Within days of Emmanuel's funeral, the Toronto newspapers were stating that local politicians were finally planning to use whatever legal means necessary to shut down Young Street's sex industry. A team of lawyers were drafting legislation 
that would effectively put body rub parlors and other businesses along the Sin Strip out of business. And then the raids began. Every night, police knocked down the doors of massage parlors and strip clubs. Using old laws like the 1943 Disorderly Houses Act and even the 19th century Body House Law, which prohibited business owners from operating brothels, they arrested club owners, employees, and even patrons. No one was immune. And by August 12th, over 100 arrests had been made and five massage parlors in a one-block radius were closed. And then came the municipal inspectors, writing up tickets and fines for bylaw violations, health code violations, and fire code infringements. If criminal charges didn't stick, they were going to bury establishments along the Sin Strip in red tape. More than 200 inspections were performed in the month following Emmanuel's death, and more businesses closed their doors. But while city officials were intent on ridding Young Street of sex clubs and their shady owners, other groups were soon caught up in the public's rage. Sex workers became targets, and so did the gay community. With the Toronto newspaper labeling Emmanuel's murder as a homosexual orgy slain, gay men were being branded as pedophiles, and closet vigilantes were soon directing abuse on the city's entire homosexual community. Widespread homophobia was already an issue in the city and was often reinforced by the police and vocal opponents of same-sex relationships. Gay rights were just beginning to gain legal recognition at the time of Emmanuel Jack's murder. But now, people had a new reason to hate homosexuals. Six months after the murder, and while the city was still grieving, American anti-gay rights activist Anita Bryant traveled to Toronto during her Save the Children campaign. The former beauty pageant contestant and Singer was an outspoken, God-fearing crusader who believed homosexuality was a sin. She used her platform to reinforce the idea that gays were deviants and could not be trusted. She believed that children had to be saved from homosexuals who would try to recruit them into their deviant lifestyle. And while most media outlets were opposed to her presence in Canada, and over 800 men and women marched down Young Street to protest her appearance. Her overzealous views on linking homosexuality and pedophilia caused concern in the city's gay community and threatened to erode any advances that had been made over the years for gay rights. And her inflammatory comments sparked harassment towards gay men. Popular gay bars were being targeted by vandals, and men were being attacked on the street because of their sexual orientation. The gay community was suddenly guilty by association, and long-simmering prejudices against homosexuals bubbled to the surface. When the four men accused of killing Emmanuel Jack stood trial so too would Toronto's entire gay community. The trial of the four men accused in the horrific murder of Emmanuel Jacks began on February 8, 1978. For the citizens of Toronto, it was going to be a difficult and potentially lengthy trial. The media coverage would be extensive and graphic, reliving every detail of Emmanuel Jack's abduction, rape, and murder. It took four days and 226 candidates to select a jury. Dozens of citizens summoned said they had already reached a verdict, 
while others were disqualified when they admitted blanket prejudice against homosexuals. Finally, eight men and four women were selected and were then immediately sequestered in a downtown hotel room with around-the-clock security. Presiding over the trial was Judge Anthony William Maloney. By the time the trial began, the four accused men had been in solitary confinement for over six months. They had been isolated from other inmates for their own safety. Every day of the trial, they were ushered into the sixth-floor courtroom at the Ontario Supreme Court on University Avenue under heavy police guard. Scruffy and unkept looking, the four men sat passively in the prisoner's box. Werner Gruner quietly read a pocket-sized Bible he always carried with him. In a surprise announcement at the start of the trial, lawyer Gordon Goldman, who was defending Robert Cribbs, said his client wished to plead guilty to first-degree murder. The six-foot-six Cribbs told the judge he was prepared to accept the consequences of pleading guilty. Lawyers for the other men were surprised by Cribbs' guilty plea and had to quickly revise their defense strategies. Over the next several weeks, the jury would hear horrific details about Emmanuel Jack's final hours. In a 16-page summary of evidence for the case, Crown Attorney Peter Rickaby led the jury through every moment from the time Saul Bettish approached the boys on the street corner to the police finding Emmanuel's body three days later. After eating a burger at Howard Johnson's, Bettish coaxed Emmanuel up to the apartment above the body rub parlor. There they met the other three men, Woods, Cribs, and Gruner. Emmanuel was talked into posing for some suggestive photographs, but when he eventually refused what they were asking, he was restrained and sexually assaulted by Bettish and Cribs. Gruner and Woods would later testify that they were there in the apartment getting stoned and watching TV, but denied taking part in the assault. After they had drugged Emmanuel, the men discussed what they should do with him. Take him on the train with them out west? Or leave him in a park? Too risky. And he could identify them. In the end, they decided he would have to die. With Woods and Cribs watching, Bettish attempted to strangle the boy with a bungee cord. When that proved unsuccessful, Bettish and Woods drowned him in the kitchen sink. Gruner testified that he was asleep during much of the time and believed that they were going to let the boy go. After Emmanuel was dead, Bettish and Cribs wrapped his body in a vinyl shower curtain and two green garbage bags secured with black electrical tape. Then they hid the body under the rear stairwell and headed back to Howard Johnson's for something to eat the following morning. That night, they tried to bury the body in a nearby lot, but the ground was too hard. They then carried Emmanuel's body up to the roof and shoved it into an air vent and covered it with garbage. Fearing they would get caught, Cribs, Gruner, and Woods made hurried arrangements to catch a train to Vancouver. Bettish said he would meet up with them there later. On Saturday, July 30th at 11.30 p.m., the three men boarded a train headed west. Hearing on the news that the police were searching for the missing boy, Saul Bettish realized that he would likely be identified by the staff at the Howard Johnson restaurant, where he had taken Emmanuel for a burger. Hoping to protect himself, Bettish contacted George Hislop from the Canadian Homophile Association of Toronto. Hislop advised him to turn himself into the police. And later that Sunday night, Bettish walked into 51 Division Police Station 
with a lawyer and began unraveling his sickening story to the shock of detectives in charge of the case. And while the horrific details of Emmanuel Jack's murder were almost unbearable for the jury to listen to, they also heard testimony from other young boys, street kids and runaways who had been lured to the apartment above Charlie's Angel's body rub parlor by the defendants. Several teenagers testified how they had been drugged, tied up, sexually assaulted, and forced to pose for pornographic photos at knife point. One young man, age 16, had been forced to pose for photographs in the dingy apartment just two weeks before Emmanuel went missing. While the defense attorney for Saul Bedish tried to have his client found not guilty by reason of insanity, Werner Gruner's lawyer told the court that his client lived in a fantasy world and had a low average intelligence. A psychiatrist who had examined the German-born defendant stated that he suffered from a borderline personality disorder that caused him to disassociate from reality at times. He lived in a world of his own, which could explain how he was in the apartment with the other men, but was seemingly unaware of what was happening to Emmanuel. Arguing that his client was not attracted to boys and didn't even know Emmanuel was dead until the police boarded the train in Sioux Lookout, defense attorney Earl Levy asked the jury to find his client not guilty of first-degree murder. George Marin, the lawyer representing Joseph Woods, asked for his client to be found guilty of second-degree murder, while Saul Bettish's lawyer maintained his client was an insane psychopath and should be found not guilty. The jury heard how Saul Bettish, adopted at birth by a wealthy family from Toronto's posh Forest Hill neighborhood, was troubled from a very early age. And even though his parents sought all sorts of help for the disturbed son, his erratic and violent behavior continued to escalate. He was eventually sent away to boarding schools and mental health facilities. As an adult, he had difficulty holding down a job. And by his early 20s, he was working as a gay male prostitute on the Young Street Strip. It was there he developed a taste for sexual sadism and young boys. Throughout the trial, 27-year-old Bettish seemed thrilled with the attention he was getting from numerous witnesses testifying about his troubled history. When put on the stand himself, he spoke openly about the violence he had inflicted on Emmanuel. He showed no remorse and made no apology for what he had done. On March 10, 1978, the trial of the four men charged with murdering 12-year-old Emmanuel Jacks drew to a close. Newspaper headlines quoted defense lawyer Earl Levy's less-than-eloquent summation of the trial, saying it was a forced march through a sewer. The trial had been a highly emotional experience for everyone involved. For the jury members who had been sequestered for weeks, it only took them two hours to reach their verdicts. Saul David Bettish was found guilty of first-degree murder. Joseph Woods was found guilty of second-degree murder. Werner Gruner was acquitted and was ordered released. Robert Cribbs, who had previously pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, would be sentenced with the others. The verdicts came as a shock to those sitting in the courtroom. And for the police investigators who had worked on the case, they were incensed about Gruner's acquittal. They believed he was equally culpable in the murder of Emmanuel Jacks. A few days after the verdicts were read, Robert Cribbs and Saul Bettish 
were back in court to be sentenced. Calling Bedish a great danger to society, Justice Maloney sentenced him to life without the possibility of parole. Do not expect to be released in your lifetime, said the judge. But in his final words to the convicted child killer, Justice Maloney added, There are those who would seek legal protection for homosexuals in the Human Rights Code, but you make me wonder if they are not misguided. The judge then sentenced Robert Cribbs to life in prison, telling the lanky man, Don't expect to be a free man, ever. The last to appear before the judge was Joseph Woods. Maloney told Woods he was lucky to have been convicted of second-degree murder. But, added the judge, you are not innocent. Woods was sentenced to 18 years in prison without the chance of parole. And even though Werner Gruner was acquitted, Judge Maloney had some choice words for him, calling him a diabolical hypocrite who wasn't innocent. Regardless of the life sentences imposed, for many, it was a crime that no punishment could ever fit. The possibility of any of Emmanuel's killers ever getting parole had some voicing their opinions on another form of justice, prison justice. After the sentencing, Emmanuel's 17-year-old sister, Valdemira, told reporters, quote, If they are killed in prison, they will have paid for murdering Emmanuel. End quote. For Toronto's gay community, the comments made by the trial judge represented blatant homophobia and threatened to derail amendments to the Human Rights Code that would protect homosexuals from discrimination. By labeling the crime a homosexual orgy, the media had helped to inflame hostility towards the entire gay community, and negative repercussions would be felt for years to come. The campaign to clean up the Sin Strip and Toronto's sex industry provided fertile ground for ongoing discrimination and police harassment, culminating in the controversial bathhouse raids in February of 1981, which resulted in almost 300 men being charged, despite the 1969 law that decriminalized sex acts between consenting adults in private. Protection from discrimination based on sexual orientation would be finally enshrined into the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms in 1986, nine years after the murder of Emmanuel Jacks. For the three men convicted in the sex slaying of Emmanuel Jacks, Judge Maloney's words of never expect to be free proved prophetic. For psychopathic narcissist Saul Bedish, prison did not deter him from seeking the attention he always desired. He wrote letters to Toronto newspapers demanding mental health treatment and went on hunger strikes to protest conditions at Kingston Penitentiary, where he was incarcerated. Bedish also attempted suicide on multiple occasions in the hopes of being transferred to a psychiatric treatment facility. But while he spent years complaining about prison life, he never once expressed any remorse. No, I'm not sorry, he told Toronto Life magazine in 1979. I don't feel anything except sorry that it's put me in here. They say that that's part of my illness. I'm not sorry. A few years ago, the aging and overweight Bedish posted a profile on a website for inmates looking for outside connections. Bedish said he was only seeking male or female pen pals. He described himself as a fan of Dungeons and Dragons, stained glass window making, and sewing quilts for charity. 
In closing, the sadistic child killer wrote, quote, I won't lie to you. My crime was bad. But with treatment and a bit more time, I feel I can once again become a productive member of society. End quote. In 2020, 70-year-old Saul David Bedish applied for parole. He was requesting escorted day passes outside the prison. In their decision, the parole board wrote, You have been incarcerated now for over 40 years, and despite having had the benefit of risk-relevant programming, you continue to be assessed as a high risk for sexual reoffending. Parole was denied. Joseph Woods, who was convicted of second-degree murder, was never happy that Bettish had confessed their crime to the police. In 1981, he attacked Bettish in prison, slashing his throat with a homemade knife attached to a toothbrush. Woods received an additional four-year sentence. He died in prison in 2003, after being denied parole four times. He was 58 years old. Robert Wayne Cribbs remains incarcerated. His parole requests have also been denied. In a rare interview with the Toronto Star in 2002, Emmanuel Jack's sister, Valdemira, spoke out about her brother's killers stating that she and her family were hopeful that none of them would ever be paroled and they would all die in prison. Thankfully, it looks like she may get her wish. For the man acquitted in the murder of Emmanuel Jacks, he wasn't sent to prison, but his mental illness sentenced him to a lifetime of despair. Unable to stay out of trouble, Werner Gruner was in and out of jail for years, and lived on the streets of Toronto. His current whereabouts is unknown. Today, Toronto's bustling urban centre at the intersection of Young and Dundas bears little resemblance to the seedy Sin Strip where Emmanuel Jacks was murdered 44 years ago. Gone are the gaudy strip club facades and neon sex signs. In their place are sleek condo developments and major retailers. The building at 245 Young Street, where Emmanuel's body was found, has since been destroyed. In its place is a trendy shoe store, catering to the fashion and styles of today's youth. None of the store's young customers would know the name Emmanuel Jacks or anything about the tragic event that took place there so many years ago. But for an older generation that grew up in Toronto in the 1970s, the summer of 1977 will be forever etched in our memories. It was the summer that a family lost a child and a city lost its innocence. It was a shocking tragedy that inspired an immigrant community to speak out and forced a city to act. Emmanuel Jacks is forever seared in Toronto's consciousness as the shoeshine boy. But he is a beloved child that ignited a movement and changed our city for the good. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts 
or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.